please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that is comfortable and at ease. So again, let yourself listen, not so much as a way of taking in information, but more as a reminder of that which you already know. And if it sounds like something that you don't know and shouldn't, then throw it away. You know, listen to what your own wisdom tells you. This evening, Um, I'd like to continue with the last, second to the last actually, of the ten qualities of our Buddha nature, the paramitas, as they're called in Sanskrit and Pali. Um, The description of the true nature or Buddha nature of every being, of the awakened heart that we've been working with as a series of teachings throughout this summer. And I'm very pleased in a way, the way, the, the way it has worked out. And this week will be the, what is called the perfection or the nobility of loving kindness. And then in two weeks when I come back, um, the last of them will be the quality of the perfection of equanimity and peace. And it seems like loving kindness and peace are really good brackets to have around September 11th as we kind of go through this cycle again. And they are reminders, O nobly born, the Buddhist texts say, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are in the changing circumstances of this world. Remember the innate integrity and wisdom and generosity, patience and trust that is there in your own heart. Now, because this is also Labor Day, often I'll do a talk on right livelihood, as it's called in the Buddhist teachings. Um, I have to at least start with a little um, bow to Labor Day um, and the underlying spirit of our labors. First, with this passage from Thomas Merton, who says as a writer, 
If you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. But if you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for your self-promotion, you can read what you, you yourself have written and after ten minutes you will be so disgusted you will wish you were dead. He's saying something of value in that passage, beside being very self-revealing, which is part of what's so endearing about him and his honesty and depth. And that is that when we live in times like this, which are in some ways characterized by the absence of the sacred, what we as individuals are called upon to do to contribute to this world is to allow our actions and deeds, our words and our life to spring from that wisdom of the sacred, that sense of the sacred that is part of every human heart. And it's that which renews and restores the world. This from Aldous Huxley in much the same spirit. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Do you understand this? I'll say this again. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time, the idea of endless progress, is the devil's work, even today demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. So, when we look at our life in terms of what we're going to get and have and be and measure it in terms of gross national product and the level of the stock market and the level of you know, the median household income and various other things like that. And then we discover that we're working so many hours a week and also stuck in the traffic so many hours a week and so forth. We have substituted time and gaining something in the future for the sense of eternity that connects us to our heart, to what is true, to what we most deeply care about. If you only have a little time in your life, you know, that question that people are asked, well, suppose you only have six months or a year, what do you want to do? How would you live? And why are you waiting? The perfection of the heart this quality of loving-kindness spoken of by the Buddha as one of the fruitions of the noble heart really speaks of the values of the sacred that can underpin everything else that we do. Because we act, we speak, we work, we live in this world of community and politics, of joys and sorrows. What are the root values by which we guide our life and our heart? Tonight, as I speak of metta, I'll tell a couple or a few stories that I've told before, but not told recently anyway, and they're ones that I like to tell, so um, I will repeat them like bedtime stories. Once a long time ago, once upon a time, Shortly after my father died, 
I was uh, going on a train from Washington, D.C., being the speaker at a big conference, um, to his funeral. It was just a few days after he died, and I attended to some things, and I went to do this conference I'd promised to do. And I was very fortunate, actually, a couple of good friends, Clarissa Estes and uh, uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter and few others all took over my classes so I could go to my father's funeral. And I went onto the train and looked around for a seat and saw this interesting looking man, sat down next to him, an African American man who was nicely dressed. And we started talking about what kind of business we were both in. And I uh, told him I was in the meditation business, basically. <laughs> you know. And he was really quite um, sophisticated. Turned out he had lived in India for a long time, um, and he was in the Foreign Service. Uh, and he quit. One day he said he was called into the embassy and called onto the carpet for overpaying his servants too much, um, and that he was going to ruin it for the others in the embassy if he was going to pay people that much. And he said, I realized that wasn't my place anymore. And so I quit the Foreign Service. I said, what do you do now? said, I run a program in D.C. for juvenile offenders, primarily for young, young men who have gang members who have committed homicide, killed people. And then he proceeded to tell me a story. We went on exchanging stories. And he said there was a young man who came into his program. Um, actually, he was 14 years old. He'd been in the gangs. And to prove himself, he'd gone out in the street and shot someone kind of an initiation, a rite of passage, and was arrested and brought in and <coughs> put on trial. And at the end of the trial, when he was convicted, um, found guilty, the mother of the boy, this innocent boy who was shot, her only son, stood up and looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to kill you, and sat back down. And then he was taken away in handcuffs to the juvenile prison detention. And he was there for a year or more, and then the mother of this child who was killed came to visit him one day. He said, what you doing here? She said, I just want to check in on you, find out what's happening. Began a little conversation, left him some money to get cigarettes, whatever he wanted. And she began to visit him periodically over the next period, months and years. And finally, when he got out, some several years later, or was about to get out, she said, what are you going to do when you get out? He said, I don't know, you know, I don't know where I'm going to go. She said, well, you got any work? Nah. I know somebody with a factory, and she kind of arranged for him to get a job. And he's getting out, she said, so where are you going to live? He said, I don't know. Well, I got a spare room. You could come to my house for a little bit till you get a space. So he came to her house and worked, and she cooked for him, and he lived there. And then about six months later, she called him in the living room one night after work, sat him down, said, you remember that day in court when you were convicted of killing my son? And I stood up and I said, I'm going to kill you. I said, yes, ma'am, I'll never forget that day. She said, well, I have. I didn't want a boy who could kill another child in cold blood at random to still live on this earth. 
And so I set about changing you. That's why I started to visit you. And I brought you things, gave you things, and now I brought you into my house and, you know, got you work and set you up. And you're not that same boy anymore. He's dead. He's gone. But I don't have anybody to live with me anymore. My son is gone and I have this room. So I want to know if you'd be willing to let me adopt you since you don't have a family to go back to. And so she adopted the boy who had killed her own son. So that's the story this man told me. And I tell it tonight in the spirit of this, the perfection of loving kindness and forgiveness, because it really asks of us, it demands in a certain way, in this troubled world, which it is, what are the values from which we will choose to live? If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a clanging gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. From Corinthians. It's said in the Buddhist texts that as one deepens in the quality of loving-kindness and in the quality of tenderness of heart that is there in each of us so that our natural care for one another grows, that there are blessings, and there's a text that lists 50 blessings. Your dreams become sweeter. You fall asleep more easily and you waken contented. And as your heart opens to this natural loving-kindness, your health gets better, and angels will love and protect you, and men and women will also love you if that interests you. And weapons won't harm you, poisons won't work, guns will misfire or whatever. And if you lose things, they'll be returned to you when you really perfect this quality. And you'll have a beautiful rebirth and people will welcome you everywhere. Your thoughts become pleasant and animals will sense this and love you. And elephants will bow to you slightly as you go by. You can try it, the zoo, see if it works. <laughs> and your voice becomes sweeter and your babies are happy in the womb and as they grow up. And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. And the world will become peaceful around you and you will see the Buddha in every one that you meet. So this is the kind of recommendation for loving-kindness you will. You know, when we speak about the perfections of the heart, people sometimes mistake it and think that it's self-improvement. There is a type of person for whom God is always mixed up with vitamins, someone said, <laughs> you know. And spiritual life is this grim duty that you have to do to make yourself better. But the blessings of this are as innate in you as your own breath. I remember when my daughter was small and we would travel in India and parts of Asia and so forth and encounter people who were, especially children, beggars, children who were so much poorer than she'd ever seen. And her immediate response is, what can we do? How much is my allowance? How much money will you give me to give away? I want all the money you will give me. And not only do I want to give the money away, but she would grab these kids and take them into stores and restaurants and say, what do you want to eat? What can I buy you? You know, let's get a big bag and fill it up with stuff for you. 
you know how children are when they are still in touch with their innate beauty and, and innocence and abundance which is in them. They can't help but say, you too, you too. We are all in it together. And when you go to Tibet or Thailand or Africa or Latin America, any of the really civilized places in the world, they call you by your name, brother, sister, uncle, auntie, grandmother, you know, even the presidents and, you know, leaders of the society, it's uncle or maybe it's grandfather Colin Powell, right? And um, some form of Uncle Bush. We won't say much more than that, <laughs> right? But you know, you got to have one in every family. <laughs> or father or grandmother or auntie or sister or brother. And that's the form of address for everybody. Yes, uncle. Yes, grandmother. Do you know why? Because it's true. We are all interconnected in the deepest way on this earth. And they have all been and they are all your blood relatives, your mothers and your fathers and your sisters and uncles and brothers. We live in a time when our country is trying its very best to make enemies rather than friends. We're having the war on terror, which is an oxymoron if you consider it very much. You know, and who are our enemies and the, you know, the axis of evil. I saw that wonderful cartoon that came out after the axis of evil speech and it was Muammar Gaddafi in Libya and um, one of the Ayatollahs in Iran and somebody else who were all saying, I'm as evil as those guys. How come I was left off the list? It's not fair, you know. This axis of evil, they didn't include all of us. <laughs> Feeling bad about it. But when we live in a time where what's being sponsored is to see the world as black and white, as good and bad as enemies, when the war on terror and all of the human rights and constitutional rights that are at risk from it grows, um, rather than attending to the injustice of the world, um, what we find is that the conflict gets fueled and it comes down especially, as it always does, on the heads of people who are poor, on people of color. It comes out through, um, you know, the inherent and yet unaddressed racism that's at the heart of our culture's wounds. We have to look in ourselves and say, is there some other response to the difficulties and fears of this world? Because it's not safe. And no amount of metal detectors is going to make you safe. And no amount of snooping on the internet is going to make us safe. It's fundamentally, as my teacher Ajahn Chah said, my nah, always uncertain. <laughs> and in a world that's uncertain, what are the values by which we will guide our star. It's said sometimes that there are two choices, love or fear. Which will we choose? Loving kindness in its deepest sense is an invitation 
for us to step out of the small sense of self, the body of fear it's called, and remember who we really are, remember that love that is there as our birthright. Remember this little story. A bear paced up and down the 20 feet that was the length of his cage. And when, after 10 years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down 20 feet as if the cage was still there. There are a lot of ways in which we forget our heart, forget what's possible. That body of fear, the small sense of self, we get lost in that, confused. But it's simply not true. It is not the truth of you or you or you or me. Love is so mysterious, you know. Everybody wants to be loved, appreciated, affection and love. But what is it? We crave it. We look for it. Um, Brian Swim calls it allurement. It's like gravity. It's something that's so fundamental to the universe that we are pulled to one another or that we are connected through it. I have this new book that just came out this week called The Art of Loving Kindness, or The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace that I wrote, finished it last summer, just before se- September came. And it's like a long guided meditation on loving kindness, reconciliation, gratitude, compassion, and so forth. Um, love. Loving kindness offers care and well being to another without expectation or demand. There's no distance between their well-being and our own. True love is trustworthy. Our love for others is an expression of our trust in love itself. No matter what happens, we can still love, no matter what happens. Love creates communion with life. It expands us, connects us, sweetens us, ennobles us. Love springs up in tender concern. It blossoms in caring action. It makes beauty of all we touch. Now, if we really want to look at love and understand it, just like we might want to look and understand peace, this world, you know, think about it. Imagine if we had the Department of Love and Forgiveness in the government that studied it and a Department of Peace that had billions of dollars to figure out how human beings could better love one another or how we could better make peace, what it would take, the kind of injustice that has to be tended to so this world could really be at peace. Imagine if we put billions of dollars into that. Think tanks and universities, the University of Love. I'd be a student there, right? The Department of Forgiveness. The Eskimos had 52 names for snow because it was so important to them. Some languages have a lot of words for what we use one word for, love. And there are all these different kinds. There's the love of desire. You know, I love ice cream. I love tennis. I love jazz or rap music or whatever it is. You know that kind of love? Kind of love mixed as desire, if you will. Then there's businessman's love. You know that in relationships, don't you? Okay, I'll give you a little security if you trade me this in return. 
All you have to do is open toward the back pages of certain papers, you know, DWM seeking SW whatever it is, you know, for with this little kind of exchange in mind, businessman's love. And I could feel it in the early years of my own marriage. Um, um, got involved with this wonderful woman who's become my wife. And early on, she said, you know, I am not going to be a minister's wife. If that's what you're looking for, try someplace else. <laughs> Which was really a good thing, as it turned out, for her and for me. Um, but we had a lot of struggles, because I wanted her just to change a little bit. You know how it is. <laughs> oh. In exchange for some good things, of course. It took a while to sort that out. To finally realize that, you know, I say this when I do um, wedding ceremonies for people when I used to do weddings. Um, it's like when you go to the used car lot and you buy this car and there's a sticker on it that says, as is. <laughs> That's how it is. You take this person as is. That's it. This too. This too. Businessman's love. Then there's romantic love, remember that kind? Some of you may still know, you know. And passionate love, oh, where are we? Have to do this. Pablo Neruda, poet of the heart. A little bit of that kind of passionate love from his captain's verses. He's speaking to his son. Oh, my son, do you know, do you know where you come from? From a lake with white and hungry gulls. Next to the water of winter, she and I raised a red bonfire, wearing out our lips from kissing each other's souls, casting all into the fire, burning our lives. That's how you came into the world. But she, to see me and to see you one day, crossed the seas, and I, to clasp her tiny waist, walked all the earth with wars and mountains, with sands and thorns. That's how you came into the world. And like a great storm, we shook the tree of life down to the hiddenmost fibers of the roots. And you appear now, singing in the foliage, in the highest branch that with you we reach. A little love poem from Pablo. So there's romantic love, there's passionate love. And then there's the love of all things where Rumi says, what need for window when there's no wall? The Kabir writes of this love, the love that sees not you, but us or I together, the love that connects us all. And when you're with somebody who has remembered or embodies that quality, it's so beautiful. It's so simple. You go, oh, why did I forget? You see the Dalai Lama, he comes and visits and he laughs and he's so generous and you say, oh, isn't that a wonderful way to be? You could, you know, not just the Dalai Lama. When the Dalai Lama came one year, much, oh, a decade and a half, two decades ago on one of his trips, he talked about the training of his monks in all these great yogic practices. And some friends of mine at Harvard Medical School wanted to bring um, some of these great yogis and did for, you know, hooking them up to various tests in their labs to find out how they could do what they were doing. And one of the most extraordinary yogis was a man who'd been in prison in 
Chinese military prison for a long time and tortured and so forth. I mean, he'd made a commitment when he went into the prison um, to keep his practice, his spirit of compassion no matter what. And when they asked him, were you ever afraid? Terrible kinds of tortures. And he said, yes, sometimes I was terribly afraid, not of being tortured or dying. I was afraid that I would lose my spirit of compassion. That's the fear that I had. Imagine that. And that was, he said, that's what let me become the kind of practitioner that I become, hooked up to all these wires. Loving kindness, a commitment to it, is what makes the heart unafraid. It is the antidote to fear. So that when the monks who were in the forest came to the Buddha one day, they'd gone out, he'd given them some teachings, and there were caves with wild animals and spirits or sounds in the dark of the forest. And they came running back and they said, you asked us to practice in these places that are really fearsome. How can we meditate in such places when we are frightened for our lives? And he said, oh, I will give you a meditation that will cure you, that will heal you from fear and protect you wherever you go. And this was the first occasion, as the story is told, that the Buddha taught the formal practice of loving-kindness meditation that we'll do as we go along a little further this evening, in which there is a kind of hospitality or graciousness of heart that chooses one being after another after another to bless with our heart's intention. The perfections are not to perfect yourself, Obviously, you've failed at that, right? Nor to perfect the world, another seemingly impossible task. But they really speak of the perfection of love, that wherever we go, this is possible. It is to see what Thomas Merton called the secret beauty in those before you, underneath all the other things, you know, or what in the Indian tradition is called the glance of mercy, the eyes of the guru when you go to see Ramana Maharshi and he looks at you with no words and with so much compassion for all that you suffered and all that you struggle with and blesses you just by this gaze and you feel transformed because somebody has loved you that deeply. So here's Wavy Gravy, you know, Wavy Gravy Clown. One of the things Wavy Gravy Clown does got his rubber nose and his long clown feet and so forth, is that he goes into hospitals, you know. He says, somebody gave me these clown things, and I uh, try to go in the hospitals, and I go into the burn units, you know, to see the kids. And these kids are pretty shaky. It's always good to lead with some bubbles, just blow some bubbles around the ward or go from bed to bed and see what games they want to play. If they're lying there with tubes coming out of them, I hit them with riddles. Riddles are great. But anyway, it's tough in there, I'll tell you. They were rough for me at the beginning. You see some pretty terrible things in these wards. Children dying, mutilated. Anyway, nobody teaches us how to face the suffering in the society. When I started out making the rounds, I went to this children's hospital and the shade was pulled on one room so I couldn't see, but I peeked in the door it was a room with children who'd been badly burned. They had them in chrome crib beds with walls on the side so they couldn't crawl out or fall out if it got too terrible. 
there was this one little black kid in one of them. He was burned. He looked like burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there. Where was his mouth? You could hardly tell. It was mind-boggling. My jaw dropped. I gasped. I became completely unglued. I remember flashing to the anti-war movement, that picture of the napalm kid I used to carry around at demonstrations, and suddenly he was right here in front of me. And my mind went in every direction. I was overwhelmed. What's going to be like if he lives? What if I had a child this happened to? What if this happened to me? I could hardly breathe. And there we were, burnt toast, an unglued clown. Quite a sight, I'm sure. And I'm fighting just to stay there, trying to find a way to get past my fear and horror. And all of a sudden, this other little kid comes whizzing by, skating along with his IV pole. And he stops, kind of pushes around me, looks into the crib at this other kid, and comes out with, hey, you ugly, just like that. And the burnt kid made this gurgling laugh kind of noise, and his face moved around, and all of a sudden, I just went for the eyes. And we locked up right there, and everything else just dissolved. It was like going through a tunnel right to his heart, and all that burnt flesh disappeared, and I saw him from that other place, and we settled right in. Not necessarily easy. Gandhi said, if I had to choose between violence and cowardice, I would choose violence. To choose to love is a really brave thing. And sometimes we think that our hearts can't stand it, that our heart is not big enough with all the sorrows of this world. But it's not something that we really need to develop and practice and seek out as much as remember that it's who we really are. When you look far enough in the eyes of whoever frightens you, deep in there. My teacher Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, used to walk from province to province with these peace marches, chanting the Buddhist text, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. You know, in Cambodia, in Bosnia, in Northern Ireland, in Rwanda, all these places where people have done terrible things to one another, do you know what they have to learn? They too have to learn how to forgive. Because without it we are stuck forever in recreating the suffering of the past. Look how he abused me, he beat me, he threw me down, betrayed me and robbed me. Continue or cling to such thoughts and feelings and you live in hate, says the Buddha. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down, betrayed me, robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. Life is fleeting, you too shall pass away, knowing this how can you quarrel? And you're asked in the teachings of the Buddha to reflect about the conflict in your life, the betrayals and disappointments. There's no one who doesn't have such. And then to ask yourself, well, what are the deepest values of my heart? If I have only a little time left on this earth, what seeds would I plant?
Yes, we're afraid when we look the number of homeless, the amount of injustice, the environment. It seems like it's impossible. Afraid the heart's not big enough. But it is who we really are. And there's no limits. It's like people say, I'm afraid I'll use up the love that I have. Maybe I can only love a few people and then I'll run down like a battery. But that's not how it works. You become a channel. You become a vessel. You become connected with that place that doesn't choose love, but that is love. Never underestimate the power of the human heart of just one person who is awake. When I look through that doorway, says Ramdas, the doorway of the heart, I see a power that makes the Pentagon seem like kids' toys. The ancient practice of loving-kindness in a systematic way begins by reciting the benefits and blessings of a loving heart just to remind us of our true nature. And then we begin with forgiveness. Talk about that a little more in a minute. To clear the heart, to let go. And then the practice is not to struggle or find what's difficult, but to choose the gateway that most naturally and easily opens your heart. Sometimes one starts with oneself. Sometimes you feel like wishing yourself well is too egocentric, artificial. It's too hard to do because we live in a culture where we've forgotten to love ourselves. So you start where you can. For some people, it might even be their teddy bear or their dog, you know. I like to tell this story, actually. James Barras was on a long retreat, one of the teachers here and a dear friend, doing loving-kindness meditation. And he was, he'd done a long kind of mindfulness retreat and he was switching to loving-kindness meditation. He said, well, I need to start with a benefactor, some being that inspires love. And he thought of two possibilities. One was the Dalai Lama and the other was his dog. And he kind of went back and forth. Which should I pick? And finally he said, I don't know, maybe I'll, uh, I'll imagine I could ask them. And he pictured the Dalai Lama and he said, you know, should I use you for my loving kindness meditation or my dog? And Dalai Lama says, whatever opens your heart, no problem. And then he pictured his dog, you know, and he goes home and opens the door and that tail wagging and he said, Dalai Lama or you? And the dog said, me, 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 he wagged his tail. You know how dogs are. So he started with his dog. And what we do in loving-kindness practice is simply plant the seed of love over and over, wherever it grows in the moistest soil, for a child, for a, for a, a friend that we love, for a benefactor, and then ourselves, and then neutral people, you know, all those people that we don't so much notice. And as you start to bring them in, the groundskeeper where you work, or the gardener, or the, you know, the person in that grocery store where you shop, and you kind of see them, and you wish them well over and over, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be well. Picture that as part of your meditation. This vast category of beings. And then all of a sudden, something changes. I know when I was first doing this practice years ago, and I picked this gardener at the retreat center. And one day, you know, 
a week or so into the retreat, I walked around the corner, and there he was, and I looked at him, and I just swooned. I said, oh, my neutral person, I love you so much. May I kept my mouth shut, but inside it was so happy to see him because I'd been wishing him well for hours and days. And it changes you to do this. You know, when Mother Teresa went to San Quentin to meet with all the prisoners, you know what she asked of them? She asked them to pray for her. That was her request. She didn't say, I'm going to pray for you. She said, please give me your prayers. Please pray for me, for we're all the same. And then you go through that and you get to, you know, eventually work with the difficult people and your enemies and so forth. It takes a great tenderness of heart, a deep compassion to breathe and feel love, feel the sorrows and the tears. But if you could hold the pain of the world and bless this earth with its beauty and its suffering, if you could offer your love to it to make a difference, wouldn't you do it? The beautiful thing in these teachings is that you can. Begin with forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean you condone the injustice of the past, You may say, never again, I will not let this happen again as best as I can. It simply means in the end that we give up hatred even for those who've harmed us. Because who, you know, who suffers from that hatred in the end? They might be on vacation and you're still angry, right? Like the two prisoners of war who met many years later. Have you forgiven your captors yet, said one? No, never, said the second. Well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? In the end, it's really for ourselves. Forgiveness means, in the end, never to put another being out of your heart. Don't ever let them pull you down so low as to hate them. That's from Booker T. Washington. Don't ever let them pull you down so low as to hate them. I think at this time in the world, um, more than anything else, we need to practice in a radical way. Forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness. I don't know what else we can do. And as Gandhi says, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it. Always. Let's do a little practice of loving-kindness and forgiveness, just as a way to end. Let yourself change your posture so you're sitting comfortably and at ease. Let your eyes close gently. This is the ancient practice of planting the seeds of loving intentions over and over, beginning first 
with the spirit of forgiveness. With your eyes closed, come back to your breath and to the quality of gentle breathing. Bring an attention to your heart as if you could breathe in and out of the chest or the heart. space of kind attention. First, the three directions of forgiveness. There are many ways in which I have hurt or harmed others, betrayed or abandoned them, knowingly or unknowingly. I remember these now and feel the sorrows I carry. Let yourself feel and remember the ways you've hurt others and what you still carry. And in the many ways that I've hurt or harmed others, betrayed them, abandoned them, out of my fear and confusion, out of my pain and anger and ignorance. In this moment, as I breathe gently, I ask your forgiveness. Forgive me. We've all been betrayed. And just as we have betrayed others, so we betrayed ourselves. So the second direction. In the many ways that I have hurt or harmed myself, just as I have hurt and harmed others and caused suffering, so too, out of confusion and pain and fear, I've caused so much sorrow to myself as well. I remember this too now. Feel what I carry. And in the many ways that I have hurt or harmed myself, this one sitting here, just as I may have hurt others, out of my fear and confusion, the ways I've betrayed myself, out of my own pain and hurt, ignorance, breathing gently in the heart in this moment, I forgive myself. hold myself with mercy, this too, and offer forgiveness. 
and third and last. Just as I have hurt or harmed others or betrayed myself, so too others have hurt and harmed me. We have all experienced the pain of betrayal. In the many ways that others have hurt, caused suffering in my life. Knowingly and unknowingly, I remember these now too and feel the sorrow I carry. Remember, feel it. And in the many ways that others have hurt and harmed me, out of their pain and confusion, out of their ignorance and anger and hurt, in this moment, to the extent that I'm ready, I offer my forgiveness. Let it be a process. I turn my heart gently in the direction of forgiving even you. I forgive you. Breathing gently, you can feel the result of the forgiveness. Sometimes the heart is lighter. Or sometimes it brings up the opposite and we feel all that we're still angry and hurt about that needs to be held with great tenderness and compassion too. And then shifting gently to the loving-kindness, using simple phrases, the ancient words. You can change them so that they speak the words that are true to your own heart. Begin by picturing a benefactor, someone who's loved you a lot, cared for you, or some being who naturally evokes the spirit of love and compassion for yourself if you're able and recite inwardly three or four simple phrases that express loving kindness for this being inviting them into love The traditional phrases include, may you be filled with loving kindness, as you picture them, or may I be filled with loving kindness. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. 
may you be peaceful, truly happy. And you could continue with them for a time. But for this practice, let us now picture another person you love a lot. Beloved one, as you picture them, the same phrases and tensions of the heart. May you too be filled with loving kindness. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. And then imagine this benefactor or these friends or loved ones looking at you with the kindest eyes, their love shining back to you. And with that vision of tenderness, come back to yourself, well-wishing. The Buddha said we can search the whole tenfold universe and not find a being more worthy of love than the one seated right here, ourselves. So seeing yourself through their eyes, well-wishing, may I be filled with loving-kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in body and mind. And may I be peaceful. May I be happy. And gently pick one or two others that you love a lot and picture them and extend the heart's open blessings. May you too be filled with loving kindness. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. May you be peaceful. May you be happy.
and let the spirit of loving-kindness grow in you and extend as if your heart could open now to all those seated in this room around you, feeling the love and connection in this moment, wishing them well. And let it extend further, this spirit of loving-kindness from this room in every direction out across the earth, for the creatures of the forests and the creatures of the waters, the creatures of the sky and the earth herself, and for the humans of the Bay Area, all your friends and loved ones and neutral people and difficult people, throw them in, and across the continent and the oceans and the earth beings in every direction, as if you could hold the earth in your arms as your child. The image from the Buddha is of a mother holding her beloved child. May all beings far and near, young and old, those who are suffering and those who are causing suffering, those who are happy, and those who are causing happiness, beings male and female, young and old, of all forms and shapes, and humans, especially humans, may you all be held in the spirit of loving-kindness. May you all be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you all be well in body, and mind. And may you all find peace. May you be free. Let yourself feel the compassion for this earth, the tenderness for every breathing creature, like the mother of the world, the father of the world holding the planet. May all beings awaken. So this is the traditional practices of loving-kindness and forgiveness. And you can work with them. They sometimes bring up feelings. Sometimes they feel very neutral. Sometimes they bring up their opposite. You just plant the seeds over and over and over. That works really well in traffic jams, in the line at the supermarket, you know, in the waiting room of your dentist or your attorney or whatever it is that you have to do. 
to sit there. You don't have to let anybody know, right? You're doing loving-kindness. Maybe you're on the ferry or the bus going somewhere or, you know, in this group of people. And you can just start blessing them. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be feel filled with loving-kindness. You know, don't look weird or anything. Just kind of do it <laughs> unobtrusively. And after a little while, they'll all feel like beloved friends. They'll go out the door. You can almost wait, bye, you know, nice to share this waiting room with you, right? It doesn't take much. It takes a moment to slip from the small sense of self into that ocean of connectedness that is who we really are. So with that, I end the evening, except for a one-syllable chant we'll do in just a moment. I thank you for your attention. I think that the quality of loving-kindness that you can practice and work with each in your own way is really one of the true gifts a human being can bring to this earth, and we really need it at this time. So let's just end with the simple chant, Ah, which is the chant of opening, letting go, the chant, the first and last sound, the, the sound of wisdom of the heart that connects with all things. Ah, add harmony, ah, ah, keep it going, ah, blessed week and remember you can always come back to the heart of love no matter what happens. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.